Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Thanks, sponsors. Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, Comcy.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck. Another eight listener questions. I uh, will mention who they're from when I have that opportunity, although not with the first one, just uh, a comment I got from somebody who was on a rant and said the market is completely irrational. I would agree. At times, the market does seem to be somewhat irrational. But the, the better question to me, is it irrational and unknowable? In other words, will we ever be able to figure it out? Is it even intelligible, understandable? Can we figure out some aspects of it? And I believe that is the case. We can never fully figure it out. But over time, I believe the market moves toward rationality. So to say that it's irrational in a dismissive way, I don't think that's helpful. I think there is some aspect of it that we don't understand, and maybe some of it we'll never understand. But a lot of times when we were doing the price guides, we talk to people, we try to figure out where is this coming from? Because otherwise it's just data that you don't understand. We try to make sense of it. So if somebody asks us, why is this card so high? We could say, here's a potential reason why people are chasing this. Okay. Second question from Skeppy. And I've got episodes coming with uh, Skeppy that are being released as we speak. He was talking about uh, game used cards and player worn cards and look at how expensive the cards are, as well as if, if they don't chop them up, now the memorabilia price is catching up with what the card uh, prices are. And again, the, the difference in availability and obtainability of game-used uh, jerseys and sweaters, whether it's hockey or basketball or baseball or football, th- there's just no comparison. There's so many more copies that they're not mass-produced, but almost in, in uh, baseball and football with different jerseys, more than one per game in some of the sports, in, in some of those events. Whereas in the 30s or 40s, they wore the same uniform every day. Maybe they had two. And then at the end of the year, they gave them to the minor leaguers to fully wear them out. So anything that's older doesn't mean it's a great buy, but it's uh, relatively much tougher. The other thing is, so what is the allure of the of the, of the modern day chopped up game used or player worn cards? And I, and what about event worn? Or should we be talking about player touched? Because if it was player touched, it could be a replica jersey. I don't think we want that. If it's an event-worn thing, what kind of event? Was it at a jersey-wearing event that you just put them on over and, and maybe they barely did touch them? But ultimately, just to tie this in a bow, I think one of the reasons uh, the uh, game use cards have been, gotten so popular is that I think they're very attractive. And when I put stuff on my wall and people walk by and they'll see some of the older cards are beautiful and that's interesting but some of the newer cards that have game used patches and things they pop they stand out and so i think it's there so thanks skeppy for that the other part of the skeppy a separate question though is when we did our episode he was comment we i i had a double boo-boo i think that the 1932 u.s caramel i called it american caramel which is not the same thing that u.s caramel is an r not an e and so it's possible that was issued with even though it's a caramel card caramel company that put it out but i think it was a gum card and that's probably what jefferson burdick knew so that's why it's r328 instead of an e classification so very interesting set i tried to figure out why skeppy told me we had the sizing wrong and i went back and in in not the very first annual price guide it wasn't in there because it was in the very back as a footnote but the set wasn't in there and then in the second year 1980 
I looked in there and it was in there. And again, this is 42 years ago. So there weren't any other price guides out there, I don't think. Now, maybe there was a sports collector's Bible or something that, that may have had this. But for whatever reason, the wrong sizing was picked up even at that early age. And I'm going to take the blame for it. I hate mistakes. And that actually is my Babe Ruth that's pictured. That Denny, my co-author, who did all the photos and did those paragraphs, I, I did a lot of the writing, but he typeset all that stuff. But I think it must have been my mistake. I don't think he was getting out a ruler to measure them. It may have been that I just carelessly said there it's about two and a half by three, which sounds unlike me. But for some reason, that error was continued. Skeppy brought it up. Thanks. And frankly, in that first uh, appearance, the 80 price cut, the uh, the Lindstrom card wasn't even really known. It was just rumors that card number 16 was somebody that had not been seen. And of course, over time that came up, that's an extremely difficult card. One of those like the Napoleon Lajoie that was withheld in order to keep kids buying candy. Next question from the Denning family. And a little bit of a comment about the eBay authentication program that's being launched here. And they uh, says eBay has been rejecting cards as non-authentic when we have video of the cards being pulled right out of sealed boxes and packs, and then saying they'd be happy if eBay would make it optional for buyers. Okay, let me comment on the second part first. I agree with that. I think if people don't want to have that additional protection, I've dealt with this seller, just send it to me. I don't need it to go to any intermediary. I just want it. I think that would be good. Now, they shouldn't have a recourse after that. And maybe that's what eBay's thinking is that they could say they don't need it. But when they get a bad deal, then they want to say that was bad. The other thing, as for rejecting cards is non-authentic when you have video, there's deep fake videos. You know, you can show that you have video of the card being pulled right out of a pack or a box. But showing that this is the card, again, this fingerprinting technology that Genement has, and I think will be more and more little micro dots or things that could say, this is the card. It's the same card that we dealt with. But failing that, I think video evidence of Dennings is not enough. The next question was from Mike Stiegline, and he mentions, should there be cards that are graded? I wouldn't say vanity, but are there cards that could have a grading label that says, and he mentions the Dimitri Young collection, where there was that PSA did that, and Dimitri Young, the the player, had a a bunch of PSA 10s. Did they get more because they were labeled as the Dimitri Young collection? They were just fabulous cards. Mike is saying, does do you think there's a market there? Well, I've talked to BGS about that, and I guess there's a couple of cards out there that say that for me. But I'm not sure it matters that much. It might in the future. And I think different grading companies have different philosophies about that. It's some additional work. But if it would be good for the grading company, they would do it. If it's good for the the seller, they would do it. As Mike points out, if somebody, some celebrity had this, it was their card. So I like the idea. It's a free world. We'll see what people want to do with it. Some comments about the Mantle versus Maze. Ben Bram. Said too young to see either play, but if you factor in Mantle being a switch hitter, yes, I think that's a positive. And tape measure home runs, which I think Mays could hit the ball really far too, but he was playing the polo grounds most of the time. But the tape measure home runs, yeah, I think that added to uh, Mantle. And he says matinee, good looks, and <laughs> replacing Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, there may be something about being a center fielder for the Yankees. And that he was injured a lot, and then you get the mystique of what could have been. Mays was just 
consistently really good. <laughs> and then he mentions finally that Mantle was The Natural, the Robert Redford uh, movie, The Natural. And that was, the book came out in 1952. So it was before Mantle really had hit. So it wasn't about Mantle, but he was like Mantle with the drama, I think, too. Further on uh, Mantle versus Mays from Greg Scholes, he said he thought Mays got bad press in the hobby for being a surly guy which he said may have been the case sometimes, but maybe not always. And I agree. I think sometimes maybe you get a reputation that's bad. And then he said he's also got this association with his godson, Barry Bonds. So Barry Bonds was not noted for being press-friendly and media-friendly. I don't think it necessarily rubbed off, but Willie Mays, based on what he did on the field, was just an incredible generational talent. And then more from uh, Greg Scholes about Mantle's uh, narrative, and even though he didn't go into the military as Mays did, but Mays doesn't get a bump like Ted Williams does when Ted Williams was out two times to the military and May lost almost two years right at the beginning, which probably would have been great years and would have bumped him up in the all-time stats. But Williams gets some kind of credit for his military service and deservedly, he was a fighter pilot. He mentions that part of the legend of Mickey Mantle is Mantle's own self-told stories, as corroborated by Whitey Ford and Billy Martin, and then having some party one night and hitting home runs the next day. So that mythology is, is what people do now. You want to draw attention to your exploits. He was uh, Instagram and Facebook before, before they existed in the uh, newspaper world. He was certainly newsworthy and more newsworthy than Mays. And finally, Greg ends with the kids wanted to be Mantle. They wanted to play like Mays, but they wanted to be Mantle. And, uh, editorializing on that. And so there's an emotional connection with Mantle for most people. The thing that Marty Appel mentioned was Mantle had a huge advantage of postseason appearances based on the Yankees making 12 of the 14 World Series. It's like being a UCLA a basketball player in the late 60s, early 70s. You were just you were the national champs. But the question arises, you know, that Rich and I tried to lay on the table that people really haven't addressed is why has the disparity between Mantle and Mays? Mantle was always more than Mays. Now he's so much more. Why has that disparity increased so much? That's hard to answer. John... Keating, still with the uh, Manlin Mays, says that Ted Williams, he says, was a better hitter than both of them, <laughs> but he never really connected with his audience. He, a little personality, a little prickly, and that's the story. And then on my eBay learning experience, a little bit more from Greg Scholes, and he just said, he's saying you should just em emphasize who you are, and that'll carry weight despite your low feedback. My feedback is not as low as it was. And he said, you, if you can squeeze that into the listing, you should do. And I think anybody can say anything. I could, <laughs> you can represent, you can be any name you want to be. I don't know that's the answer, even though it'd be honest. But what I would find is my best thing is as my feedback increases, the feedback is helping to answer the questions of me not being a recognizable name seller because they can look at what previous buyers say. They've gotten what they, thought they were going to get or they were pleased if it was under-promised and over-delivered and it was shipped uh, quickly and packaged well, then I'm not saying it wouldn't be helpful in selling. I could sell more lots for more money, I think. But on the other hand, I would make less money per hour, if that makes sense, because I'm already getting a lot of questions, which I'm answering, but I get even more questions, not all of which would be relevant if I'm going by my own name. And so the money I'd make per hour after you deduct net of the Q&A of tell me how you got started collecting or how did you get those prices back in the day? It's all the stuff I'm dealing with on the podcast. So eBay, I'm just trying to just see what goes. 
Another guy, this Michael Pasco, very kind reply. Mike says, I'd love to browse your stuff if you tell me your seller name on eBay because I think I'd collect a lot of the same stuff and I'd love to buy something from you. I'd love to have you buy something too, but at this point, I'm I'm not doing that. Could change. And then same thing with Spencer Smith. He said, I'm enjoying the podcast, but I'd like to know your eBay username because I'd, I'd like to pick something out. And uh, again, you should... If you collect a certain player, then look for that player. And if it's a player lot, maybe it's mine. And I just don't want to give any clues. Lastly, from Daniel Wilson on the card wall, from the videos that are on YouTube only, Daniel Wilson, he really appreciated the one that was uh, Jesse Burkett up through Rod Carew because it's alphabetical. He said, I really like the Carew rookie. Uh, that's obvious. The early career autograph of Miguel Cabrera. That's nice. He said, but I've never seen the John Candy card. I have a John Candy card that was put out as part of the set and it's a, a caricature. It's fun. And I don't know that it's exceptionally valuable, but I, I've only seen one. So I picked up the one I got it probably in Canada. I'm pretty sure I picked that up at one of the expo shows back in the day, long, 25 years ago, whatever that was. And then lastly, again, still from Dan Wilson, um, he really appreciated the, in the Harry Kotze to Charles Comiskey, that last card wall video. He said the Rocky Colavito autograph is beautiful, just so different from many of the players' uh, signatures today. And it was very cool that it was signed on the back as well. Well, it wasn't signed, but it was initialed on the back. And it, I realized that nobody signed their cards on the back of the kids in the neighborhood. And I lived in f five different neighborhoods. I, I was doing the math there. And I th I've never seen a kid put his name on the back of the card, but I've frequently seen, and not always, frequently seen in, in different states, different cities, different neighborhoods, putting their initials. So how they knew to do that, I don't know. I was JB, obviously. But I went to a different school in the fourth grade, two different schools in the fifth grade, another different school in the sixth grade, and another different school in the seventh grade. So that's a sample of five different schools during my collecting. That's how I have a, a diverse perspective about collecting, because I collected in five different houses with five different... And there's some overlap in some of the some of my friends, but initials on the back. Do you find JB on the back? Yeah, let me know. Thanks, everybody. I'll be back again tomorrow with another episode. The man